Well, last week we took a little break from our, our series on the minor prophets with major messages. And we're going to pick back up today with the minor prophets with major messages. And today we're going to look at another minor prophet, which happens to be the shortest book in all of the Old Testament. And his name is Obadiah, not to be confused with Obi-Wan from Star Wars. I know they sound similar. What we're going to look here today as you talk about it is we the last message that we talked about was from the book of Amos. And Amos is such a powerful message as we we went through there. And I hope maybe you've had a chance to go and read that sometime that Amos message was basically this. Seek the Lord and live, live holy, live lovingly and live for the Lord. And so today we're going to continue looking at the shortest book in all of the Old Testament and Although it's short, it doesn't have anything to do with its significance. Obadiah's message is very brief, but it is a unique message as Obadiah begins a little bit of a process that we see in the Old Testament minor prophets as he begins prophesying to other nations outside of Israel and Judah at the time. And Obadiah's context is right in that time after the Israelites have been taken captive by the Babylonians. And he's right along that timeline right there. To put it in a little bit better perspective, Obadiah would have been prophesying along the same lines as Jeremiah, maybe briefly afterwards. And so we're going to see a little bit about Obadiah's message here today. We don't know a lot about Obadiah as a person because his book is so short. His words are so short. But we do know that he was an Israelite, beloved of the Lord, and God used him to be a messenger. And Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. And you're probably noticing by now that each of these prophets, they, they have a name that has a significance of meaning. And so Obadiah, once again, among other many names in Hebrew, means servant of the Lord. And so we were going to look at this. There is no chapters in Obadiah. It's so short. But we're going to look at the first few verses here in the beginning of Obadiah in just a moment. But as I told you a moment ago, that Obadiah is beginning to prophesy to other nations. And he begins to prophesy to the nation of Edom. And Edom is one of those ites of the Bible, right? You have the Canaanites, the Edomites, all those ites of the Bible. The termites, no, they're not really ones, but that's how they were seen in the eyes of the Israelites. They, all of these different surrounding nations that were problems and thorns to them over the years. But Edom had been a problem nation for many, many years, starting all the way back to the book of Genesis and was a problem for many of the kings, including David, Saul, and Solomon, that they had to deal with the Edomites. But the Edomites have a history that is very unique that kind of gives context to why they have been such a troublesome people for the Israelites all throughout their history. If you go back and you look in the book of the uh, Genesis, you'll see the patriarchs, we call them, of the Bible. In the beginning, you have Abraham, right? And Abraham married Sarah. And then Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac. And Isaac married Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had not just one son, but they had two sons. And not just two sons, they had twins. And the Bible tells the story about the two twins that were inside of Rebekah that were kind of painting the picture of a war going on inside of them, that they struggled with one another, that even coming, even when, when they, after they were born, they were troublesome with one another. And so Rebekah had two sons, and their names were Esau 
and Jacob. And if you remember the story, if you go back and you read that in Genesis, you'll know the story of Esau and Jacob, that Jacob wanted the blessing, which was the birthright from his father, Isaac. But Isaac was old and blind and he couldn't really see well, but Esau, the Bible describes him as a very hairy man and he was redheaded. And so the Bible says that what Jacob did was he made himself feel like he was Esau and he tricked Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. And so basically Jacob was, his name means deceiver. He cheated Esau out of his birthright blessing. And this began a year's of history. And as we continue to look in through the book of Genesis, Esau never forgave Jacob. He never let it go. He was always bitter about what had happened. He was always holding it against them. And we even see at some points that they were almost coming up in battle against one another. And so from Esau comes this nation that Obadiah is talking about, the Edomites. And it kind of gives you a context now about why there is such a history there. Now, what is even more interesting is we're going to see here in Obadiah is that Obadiah is talking about the Edomites and they're a brother to Israel. They're a brother, right? You have Jacob and Esau and their sons, but they've been these pesty neighbors of a nation and they're their own brother. And so we begin to see how the Edomites began to be a problem all throughout the history of Israel, even up until now. And Obadiah describes them as living up in the high hills. They lived up in the rocks. And we're going to see that that kind of had an association to do what with what was going on in their hearts. And maybe you're familiar with Petra. Petra is the ancient uh, place where you can see the facade of the front of it. It's very beautiful. But it's believed that the Edomites lived in that area. So we're going to read here today in Obadiah chapter 1, or Verse 1, rather, through 4. So the Bible says, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. The messenger was Obadiah. Now it's important to note something here, as you're going to see later in the book of Obadiah, that he calls himself a messenger to the nations, not just to Edom, but to the nations. And there happens to be this shift in the language of Obadiah. In the beginning, we see him talking specifically to Edom, and then it changes over to all of the nations. So we know from the context of what Obadiah is saying that the message is not just from the Edomites, it's for all of the nations. He says, rise up, let us rise up against it for battle. I will surely make you the least among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Your proud heart has deceived you, you that live in the clefts of the rock, whose dwelling is in the heights. You say in your heart, notice this, who will bring me down to the ground? Uh-oh. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Some very hard language, but it appears that the Edomites have a problem in their heart, and it's a problem that all of us deal with. It is called pride. Edomites had it bad 
They had it real bad. They didn't just have pride. They had the worst type of pride. They had self-reliance. They had the kind of that they wanted everybody to bow down and applaud them. And it's interesting that Obadiah almost equates that the position of where they lived to the posture of their hearts. That they felt that, that since they lived in such a high place that nobody could attack, that that had almost been attributed to their sense of pride. And I think Obadiah's message is basically summed up in this, as we're going to talk about this morning, that humility is the pathway to the Lord, choose wisely. Humility is the pathway to the Lord, choose wisely. I think if this was going to be put in Thanksgiving terms, it would be they needed to learn how to eat humble pie, mashed ego, and sweet humility. They were learning a lot in their lives. And I want you to really take note today that what Obadiah had to say against the Edomites was a strict accusation about what was going on in the heart. And you see this through every minor prophet we've talked about. He's trying to get to them in their hearts. He says to them, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And so Obadiah is ultimately trying to bring them the Lord's word. And the Lord had these two accusations against, the, against Edom. Number one was their pride. And number two was the mistreatment of their brother. And so let's talk about the first one. Their pride. Edom's had a self-image that was elevated just like the location of their city. High in the cliffs. But their pride was a matter of the inward heart, which finds expressions in the words that the prophet gives. The Edomites, the Bible talks about that they boasted about living in the clefts of the rocks. They boasted about living in a place where nobody could touch them. In other words, they felt like they were untouchable. You can't do anything to me. We live in such a place you can't even get to us. And so therefore it attributed to their pride and arrogance. And so number one, the Lord says to them, your proud heart has deceived you. Your proud heart has deceived you. Let's talk about this for a moment. Your proud heart has deceived you. I've told you this before, and I say it again this morning, that I think pride is one of the most scariest sins that is, is on the earth. Pride is one of the most dangerous sins that I think you could ever get involved with. Not that it's any worse than any others. They're all sin. Sin is sin. But pride is especially wicked. Pride is what originated in the heart of Lucifer. When he said that he could thought that he could be like God. And therefore, pride was born. But you'll notice that what the Lord tells them about pride is he says that your proud heart has deceived you. And this is what I want you to catch about pride this morning is that pride is deceptive. Pride is very deceptive, and it's not deceptive to the people around you. It's deceptive to us, our own selves, when we have pride. When, when, you, when you have a proud heart, you're not able to see things clearly. Up is down, and down is up. Pride is blinding. You lose all perspective. You can't see things right anymore. When you think that you're on top of the world, you have a perspective of everything else that looks like everything is below you. But can I tell you quickly, as the, the moment that we begin to look like we're on top of the world, that we have to look under our feet and see that there's nothing there and we're going to come falling down very quickly. Pride is absolutely blinding. You lose perspective of who you are. Pride has destroyed great people. Pride has been the ruin of many great leaders 
throughout history. It's that sense in their heart where they think, just like the Edomites, I'm untouchable. Nobody can do anything to me. You can't hurt me. You can't harm me. I know it all. I'm better than all. That attitude is very dangerous. And it was the attitude that the Edomites had. And their pride was beginning to cause harm to other people, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But their sense of security was even deceptive. They thought that because they were up high in the rocks that nobody could touch them. But they didn't know that the Lord will quickly bring down those people who have a haughty heart. Pride comes before the fall, as the Proverbs say. There's this word in Luke that uh, the, the Jesus gives. And I wanted to read this, this parable that Jesus said that uh, that kind of relates to this idea of being untouchable. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told this parable and he said, two men went up to the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And so the Pharisee standing by himself was praying this. Listen to how he prays. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I'm not like a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector standing right here beside me. Pray. I do everything right. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. I can imagine that there was almost a little fake smile coming on his face, right? As he told all these great things that he did, he felt real good about himself. I do all the right things. I do this. I pay my tithes. I go to church. I do all of this. But then the tax collector was standing far off. He would not even look up to heaven, the Bible says. But he was beating his chest and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than all the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride is not something that any of us can say. I'm glad that's not a problem for me because even that statement in its own is the beginnings of a proud heart. We can go through life and feel like I'm untouchable. I'm not like other people, but that's just the moment that that very little ounce of pride begins to come and take root in our own hearts. Pride is something that when you have it, You learn as you're dealing with other people and you're dealing with the fallen human nature is that you can't look upon with anybody else with judgment. Because as Jesus said, if you look at somebody else and you're trying to pick out the little uh, splinter in their eye, you're going to look back and see there's a log coming out of yours. Pride is not something that allows us to say, well, look at so and so what they did. They did this. They messed up. No, no. Because that is the beginnings of a proud heart arising in even our own selves. Listen, I told you today, pride is deceptive. And as the Bible says in Genesis, sin lies at the door. It's just waiting there. And all of it takes is a little bit of an attitude change, a little bit of a perspective change, even a little bit of a looking down on somebody else to say the beginnings of pride are coming. We have to be careful. And as I would say the words of the psalmist, that the the psalmist would say this, guard your heart, guard your heart. And even others would say that the heart is deceptive above all else. We have something to watch out for and we have to be careful to guard our heart. Pride is sly. That's the best way to put it. It's it is almost can be perfectly equated. That image of a serpent in the garden. That's the perfect image of pride. It's like a serpent. One moment, you can't even see it's there, and the next you look, and whoops, you got bit. 
That's the way pride works. It can get up in any of our hearts, and if we're not careful, it can have root and have life through us. Pride is something that can be prevented through a humble posture and living toward the Lord, practicing praying, practicing reading the Word of God, living in a mindset of needing the Lord will always keep a heart humble. The second thing that the Lord said against them was he said that your proud heart has deceived you, firstly. And then secondly, he told them about their own heart, what they had said to him. They said to him, who will bring me down to the ground? This was the problem with Saul on the road to Damascus. He was riding his high horse. He thought he was everything. And then the Lord came in a moment and changed his life. I like to call this attitude, this part of pride, reckless arrogance. Reckless arrogance. When you have the heart that says, who will bring me down to the ground? When you say, nobody can tell me anything. I know what I'm doing. I want to tell you something. That's called reckless arrogance. We have to be careful that we don't allow that kind of root to come in our heart. The kind of attitude that says, I know best. No one can tell me anything differently. Because what follows that type of reckless arrogance is defiance, disloyalty, unbelief, and a false sense of self-sufficiency. When you think that you are your own God of your own world and everything is in your control. Can I tell you something, friends, myself included? There is really nothing that's in our control. We live in a life that is like a roller coaster up and down. We never know what's coming tomorrow. The only one who holds tomorrow is the Lord. And so the moment that I try to lay control on completely on everything in my life, I can tell you it's probably going to slip out of my hands in any moment. Be careful of a reckless, arrogance attitude. Who will bring me down to the ground? It's almost like the Edomites were testing God in a say. They were saying, come on, God. Bring, bring us down. Do what you can. They had gone years and years of being untouched in a sense. But now they were about to see that God is a just God. And he will not allow that type of pride to go unchecked. All of us here this morning, this is starting with the guy right here today. That the message to the Edomites is a message to all of us to say, Lord, check my heart. Search my heart. Look over me. It was this very pride that it's interesting that Obadiah, it's ironic actually, that Obadiah is prophesying against the Edomites that brought Israel and Judah down into captivity. It was this sense of pride and self-sufficiency of the kings who said, we don't need the Lord. We are king. We can do this on our own. We can do the temple all by ourselves. We don't need God. And it was that type of pride that led to their own downfall. Just as a history, uh, just as an example, I want to challenge you. Go back through history and find one person who had a proud heart and came out on top. Nobody. Nobody who has a proud heart comes out successful. Next, we see that pride was, their, was the chief accusation against them. And secondly, was the mistreatment of their brother. Edom was the brother of Israel. And they had treated them badly. They had treated them wrong. And the Bible goes in, and if you look in the rest of Obadiah, uh, verses 11 through 14, eight times Obadiah puts this again to the people of Edom. He says this, you should not have. You should not have. He says that eight times over and over again. He says, you should not have gloated over them. 
You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted on the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people. And you should not have gloated over their disaster. In other words, what was happening was when the people of Israel came into captivity, Edom just watched from their high perch and laughed and gloated and said, oh, we're so grateful. We're so glad that they're being brought down to destruction, that they've been taken captive. And the Lord points the finger back to them and say, you should not have done that. You should not have rejoiced over the destruction of my people. You should not have looked down upon them in that sense. They chose to be vindictive. They chose to be unforgiving. And they chose to gloat in their brother's misfortune. They knew the right thing, but they chose the wrong thing. And we see something here that is just a basic lesson of life that started in the Word of God. That choices always have consequences. Choices will always bring about a consequence. And whether we choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing, that's yet to be said. And this was the case even with Eve in her pride in the garden. Was the serpent tempted her and said, you will be like God. She had to live with the consequences of her choice. She had to live with the choice of instead of obeying God and following the Lord and being humble and choosing the right thing, she chose the wrong thing along with Adam and it continued to bring a consequence into their life that can I tell you something that all of us continue to live with today. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve. That same thing is in the heart of all of us as humans. What is interesting is that the prophecy against Edom is this Hebrew word. Edom is the same spelling for the Hebrew word of Adam, which means humanity. He was prophesying against humanity that in their hearts was pride, self-sufficiency, and they had gloated over the mistreatment of their brother. And now God had come to set things in order and check them. This teaches us a principle that Jesus even begins to teach throughout the New Testament. That in Matthew 7, 12, he says this, that whatever you wish to, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule as it's called. And you know what's interesting about the golden rule is that I believe every religion in the world has the same almost exact wording in their religion. I wonder where they got it from. That if you also wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets, especially speaking to Obadiah. And Obadiah prophesied to them as he began to close up the book. And he said, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This teaches us something about life. And even now, that who we are and how we treat others is how we're going to be treated. It teaches us that if we want to be treated nicely and kindly and lovingly, that the Bible instructs us to do this to other, especially in the season that we're in right now. And in the time of divisiveness in our culture, in our nation, in our world, can I tell you something? This is a better, no better time for us to put the words of Obadiah and the words of Jesus into practice. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. What would happen if we had a world of people who said, I want to be, I want people to be nice to me, so therefore I'm going to be nice to others. It would change the perspective of our hearts. 
Philippians chapter 2 says it this one, a, a strict, a, a very hard word almost for us, that he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Well, this is contrary to culture, right? Our culture tells us to look to yourself first. Make sure that when, you, when, you, when you're getting ready for your day, you think about yourself above all others. Every commercial that we have now is built towards me culture. But the Bible teaches us the culture of putting others above ourselves. It's the culture of Jesus as he would go down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet. That is the attitude that he's trying to demonstrate. And Philippians goes on to say, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. What a challenge for all of us here today. How many of us, starting with the guy right here today, are looking out for the interests of others instead of our own first? The Bible teaches us, and he goes on in Philippians, that let this mind be in you, that light that is in Christ. This is the mind of Christ, and this was the mind of Christ as he came and he gave his life because he was looking to our interest first before even his own. And this is the same mindset that the Lord is trying to teach us even through the words of Obadiah, that we might love and serve others. I know that's hard words right there. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to me when I think about practically Oh, this is going to get hard. When I think about practically going to the grocery store and, oh, man, sometimes you run into some troublesome people, but the Bible says, look to the interest of others before your own. Oh, okay, Lord. Or when you're going down the highway and you say, Lord, look to the interest of others before your own. Oh, that's hard, right? The words of the Bible sometimes cut us right to the heart. But you know what God is wanting us to do is he's wanting us to be more like him in the world because that's what's going to change the world is when there's less of us in the world, as John the Baptist would say, I must decrease and you must increase. This was the perspective and I would pray would be the motto of all of us this year. You know, it's just coincidence that Obadiah is talking about pride and the mistreatment of his brothers. And it just happened to be a kind of coincidence that it fell on this particular day as we're preparing for a Thanksgiving season of being around the table with people that sometimes we may not get along with or we may not agree with. That the words of the Bible say, look to the interests of others before your own. What a powerful reminder here this morning. Musicians are going to come, and I want to leave you with these last words of Obadiah. Obadiah says this, the final verse in, in Obadiah, as he's talked about their accusations, as he's talked about what's coming against them, he says this last word to them that is so encouraging, as he's talking about Mount Zion, and he talks about them being, uh, being the descendants of Esau, and he tells them, it's all going to come down. You're going to come down. Your, your pride is going to bring you down. And he says the same word is for every other nation. And can I tell you something today? It's for us even here in the United States today. That we have to be careful that we don't have a proud heart. A heart that thinks we're better than others. Lord, forgive us of that mindset. And Obadiah closes the words of the book by saying this. Those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion. May we live in the comfort of that promise today, that humility is the pathway to the Lord. Choose wisely. Those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. 
In other words, he's saying that mountain of pride is going to be beneath you. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You know what Obadiah teaches us? Is that much as we may think that we're the king of our heart, we're the king of our lives, and we're the king of our plans and future and hopes and dreams and etc., etc., the words of Obadiah teach us there is only one king, and his name is Jesus. And Philippians would go on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in this day and age, as Philippians 2 reminds us, the kings and the rulers of the world, they make their plans, they go on, and they say, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. The Bible says that the Lord, being the great God and king that he is, sits on his throne and he puts back his head and laughs at their futile plans because the Lord is in control. God is king. He is almighty. And today, for anyone who might want to challenge God this morning in our own hearts, like the Edomites did, may we, this Thanksgiving season, humble our hearts before the Lord, like that tax collector, and say, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm sorry, Father, I humble myself before you. As Peter would encourage his audience, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Humility is the pathway to the Lord. Choose wisely. You want to get close to the Lord? Stay low. You want to be nearer to Jesus than ever before? Go low, go low, go lower, 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 lower. Lord, I don't want any pride. I don't want to look to myself and think that I'm the best and on top of the world. I want to submit to you. I want to rely on you. I want to trust in you for all of my needs. I don't want to make plans for my heart. I want to trust in God in all things. Go low, go low, go even lower. It was the prayer of Andrew Murray who would say this in a great book that he wrote called Humility. Say, I've learned to pray this. Lord, take me lower, lower, lower. And may we this morning as God's people here today say that same prayer to the Lord. If God's ever going to use us, can I tell you today, God's not going to use a proud people. He's not even going to bless a proud people. God blesses humility because a humble person says this, that all the glory is to the Lord. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything I've done. It's only because of the Lord. We say that even today, that those who have been saved, they're going to go up to Mount Zion. They're going to rule that mountain of pride, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Would you stand with me this morning? Aren't you grateful today? There's only one king, and his name is Jesus. Every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess. We stand at an interesting place in history and time in our world. Though we might look at our world and think, Lord, what is going on? Things might seem out of control. We watch rulers and leaders and all kinds of things happening and we think, what is going on? Can I tell you today, there's only one king and every proud heart will submit to the Lord. 
this morning you're here, would you close your eyes with me? You've got pride in your heart today. Maybe you don't even know it. As we said, pride is deceptive. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just going through life as if you're in control and you're beginning to feel the moment when things are spinning out of control. That's what happens when you have a proud heart. But if you'll be humble and surrender the Lord and trust Him to direct your paths, He'll lead you, He'll guide you. This morning, I want to encourage you and challenge you to make things right with the Lord this morning. Father, search our hearts today. We don't want to be proud. We don't want to be arrogant. Especially don't want to be reckless. So Lord, this morning, we still our hearts before you. We say, Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry, Lord, when we've tried to take the reins of our lives and be in control. We submit to you this morning in holy surrender to you today, Jesus, that the kingdom is the Lord's. Lord, this morning I join with my friends that are here watching online. I say again today, Lord, I give you my heart. Lord, I don't want to say in my heart like the Edomites did. I don't want to be that type of person. Lord, I want to be the type of heart that says, Lord, I can't go on to tomorrow without you. I need you today. So, Lord, search our hearts today, Lord. Check us today, Father. Lord, help us to do as your word says, to esteem others better than ourselves, Lord. Help us to not look down at people but to look up to people, Lord, to be a blessing to others, especially in this season that we're in. Father, this morning, if there's someone today who needs to make things right with you, they need to repent. They've been living a life of trying to do it all on their own, never surrendering to you. I pray, Lord, that every proud heart would surrender to you. We would surrender not just to you as our Savior, but to you as our Lord give you control of our lives. Lord, you're a gentleman. You're not going to force it from us. You're going to just wait patiently and continue loving us. But Lord, I pray today that we wouldn't wait any longer. Today is the day of salvation. Now, Lord, may you rescue us from our pride, from our arrogance, from our self-sufficiency as we depend on you, Lord. Oh, how we need you this morning. Oh, how we need you today choir is going to come. You need to pray this morning and trust the Lord. You're living in a difficult place. I want to encourage you, just kneel where you're at this morning and call upon the Lord. As we learned in Joel, all of those who shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Him and trust in Him. Believe in Him. Lean on Him. May we not lean on our own understanding but in all of our ways acknowledge Him. Lord, we thank You today. We exalt You this morning. I want You to be in control today, Lord. I want to give You all the glory, all the honor over my life, Lord. Oh, how I need You this morning. I can't make it to tomorrow without You, Lord. How will I go on if You don't help me today?
Lord, we pray like Moses. If you won't go with us, Lord, then we won't go at all. We need you today. May we learn to depend and trust in you, Lord. God, may we not gloat and boast in anything other than the Lord. May our boast be in you today, Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning. Search our hearts today as we sing.